In this episode, I am joined by one of the rule gurus as they share their knowledge on passive blocking and I look at developing social skills in your campaign. Welcome to the Mithras Matters podcast, season one, episode 21, social skills and passive blocking. And welcome to Mithras Matters, a podcast dedicated to the Mithras rule set and all its supplements. As always, I am your host, Inwills, and welcome to the month of February, what I call the awkward month of the year. Not only have I had issues saying the word, as you might be able to tell, speech therapy sessions were not that good when I was younger, but February is also an awkward month because it has less days, there is the added complexity of knowing whether it's a leap year or not, and then there is the dreaded Valentine's Day, or as I call it, the lie about the number of cards you have received day. As we click over to the first episode in the 20s, I've been looking back at all the episodes and acknowledging the range of topics which we have engaged with. I have an Evernote book dedicated to the podcast. Other notebook apps are available and I like to keep a page just for new ideas. Saying that, I've been looking at the year ahead and there are some great ideas for episodes, so plenty to look forward to. Plus, some new segments are on their way, one which will appear in this podcast. Okay, so without further ado, let's get on with the campaign updates. I've been thinking a lot about social skills this month. We were, as in the Mithras Gaming Group, lucky enough to play test the social conflict rules now published in the Mithras Companion. If you haven't managed to get a copy of this yet, it is well worth it. As well as the social conflict rules, which I want to touch on within these campaign updates, it also has the rules for tactical combat for all you tokens and square grid players out there, Sanity rules, if your campaign has that scary touch. Vehicle pursuits, chases and races for those excellent follow that chariot moments. And finally, an alternative character generation system for creating those pulp fiction characters and comic book heroes. Social interaction is something which I adore within my campaign. I guess this relates most to the role-playing aspect of the game, and I like assuming the different personalities within the campaign, providing them with aims and objectives, and play them consistently in every session. I really enjoy seeing the players react when they remember encountering a familiar NPC. One of my favourite ones in the Odess campaign has to be the cartographer Sylvester McHoon. I really enjoy playing him and interacting with the characters. 
We often wonder how he, as in Sylvester, and Cyrus will get on. Something to definitely look forward to. We all love role-playing. That moment around the table, whether it be physical or virtual, when we get to play our characters or NPCs, complete with voices, personality, and in some cases, even actions. I must admit, I sometimes think that we are all wannabe actors as we engage with our characters. I would love to have been a voice actor, though some of them out there are truly fantastic, but I have to be content with my two or possibly three at a push voices which I can use. Yes, I know most of my NPCs sound the same, but I feel that I embellish them with personality and flair. Many of you will be excellent role players. You can probably role play your character out of every situation in the adventure. But this often gets me thinking about social skills within the game and whether or not they sometimes get replaced by excellent role playing. I made a video on the topic as part of the Gibbering GM series on YouTube where I mentioned that I actually want players to pay for their social skills. In skill points, you understand, not in hard-earned cash. And that the actual prowess of the player themselves should not actually come into play. Many disagree. That's the best part of sharing thoughts. The subsequent discussion and exploration is something which I really enjoy. I wonder what that says about me. Many people say that if uh, the player uses their role-playing skills effectively, then the GM could or should reduce, say, the difficulty grade of the role in response to that excellent RPGing. But I do have an issue about that. Longshank's EPG is a fencer of the rapier type, not the picket, and often can describe his slashes and parries in great detail, including shifts in weight and angles of sword swipes. So if the excellent role player gets the difficulty of the task reduced for good role playing, should Hengis get his combat role reduced in difficulty for his descriptive combat swings? In fact, this could then be applied to a number of skills. Whenever they are described well, the difficulty is decreased. But hang on, the description and how good it is must surely be subjective. So who is to say what is good and what is excellent? And at this precise moment, my GM's virtual head explodes and I revert to my original way of thinking. Enjoying the role playing and let the roles speak for themselves, unaffected by the descriptive ability of the player. Now that I've got that out of my system, back to the Mithras companion and the social conflict rules. I'm not sure what you do as a GM for the characters within your campaign and their individual storylines, or whether you as a player maintain your character's own objectives and aims. But I've been creating individual plot lines for the characters within the campaign for some time. These are all stored and I add ideas and next stages as these come to me or something happens within the campaign. We always engage with these during the experience role spending session and it is great to see everyone engage and make decisions individually as their storylines progress. Sometimes I want to have a storyline continued over a period of time, even for example when the party is out adventuring. And this is where the social conflict rules have really slotted in nicely to the campaign. 
If you are not familiar with the social conflict rules, and I will be doing a rules video on them in the future, these are rules which allow social interaction to be tackled like a combat system. There is initiative, action points, arguments and counter-arguments, and also special effects. One of the reasons I like Mithras Combat so much is that I think it allows combat characters to be experts in their field, rather than just rolling to hit and doing damage. This system allows those social characters to perfect their roles and become masters in their social interaction skills. The nature of the social conflict can be anything from a negotiation, arguments in the Order's weekly meetings, or even that careful seduction of the local leader of the Guard. The limits are really endless. I've not implemented the rules into every conflict which happens, but I can see, certainly see the potential and they would certainly allow players to, who want to take the role of the face or social interaction lead to become experts in their field. Sometimes we have a combat which lasts the full three hours of the gaming session. With the new social conflict rules, I can see this happening with some social interactions. So how am I planning to use these social conflict rules within my campaign? Well, initially, I am going to be looking at those downtimes when characters are learning new skills and spells and linking the rules to the character's subplots or storylines. Bartleby, played by Mr. Pickles, seems to naturally gravitate towards social skills, and the Order of Amriel, the Order of the Theists in the campaign, has the potential to be corrupt and possibly to be misled. Cyrus, in his Order of the Sorcerers, also has this potential, although Cyrus will need to make his way up the ranks first. I am definitely going to start getting Bartleby to speak at the Order's council meetings. Bartleby is passionate about the slum dwellers in Lindo, and his Order is, well, shall we say, less concerned about them. Some slum dwellers, in their opinion, are all take and little give. Well, the only thing which they probably give are diseases, infections, and maybe the odd lice or two. I'm looking forward to acting out the Order's main council meeting when Bartleby takes the floor and, using the social conflict rules, pleads the case for the poor. I am not sure of the outcome, but I know that there will be lots of plot lines created as it progresses, and maybe Bartleby will start to gain some of his own political enemies within his order. I've just remembered that I haven't mentioned this to Mr. Pickles yet, so if you are listening, Mr. Pickles, I hope you are looking forward to this as much as I am. So if you are interested in developing the social interaction side of your campaign and providing those non-combat players with something to really get their social teeth into, then why not check out the social conflict rules in the Mithras Companion? It is available through all the usual retailers. And if you want to hear more about my views about social skills, then check out my blog at inwills.co.uk or head straight over to my YouTube channel. Okay, what's up next? Oh yes, the rule guru is in the house. In episode 20, I mentioned that it would be fantastic to have a segment 
where people who are brilliant at the rules come along and explain things for us. Well, to my utter delight, we had a response. I still have very limited playing experience invested in the game, so I'm looking forward as to these as much as you are. So with the offer accepted, I thought I would give the gurus a meaty rule to start off with. So here is Matt Eager, one of the featured rule gurus, talking and explaining about passive blocking. Take it away, Matt. Hi, I'm Matt Eager of Old Bones Publishing, Matt E on the forums, and our topic for today is passive blocking. Keep in mind that I didn't write Mithras. I'm just here at Inwills' invitation to discuss my own understanding of how the core rules work and how to make the most of them during actual play. Before we get to it, a bit of context. Unlike in some other games, attacking in Mithras is not resolved with a single roll. Here, both combatants roll, one to hit and one to defend. Here, we have no armor class with bonuses for being shifty due to high dexterity or for wielding a shield, the shield bit being especially relevant. More on that later. Another feature of Mithras combat is what we call the action point economy, in which a character can only defend so many times in a combat round. This makes getting outnumbered deadly in Mithras. Keep shields and action points in mind as I continue. Okay, on to our actual topic. The rules for passive blocking and the related free action called ward location are on pages 93 and 105 of the latest edition of the core Mithras book. To summarize, instead of actively parrying with a weapon, the wielder can hold it to passively protect a designated hit location from any blow that might happen to land there. The main point of passive blocking is that a character can enjoy some of the benefits of parrying without spending action points. Advantages. As mentioned, spending an action point is not required for passive blocking. This can be the difference between life and death for an outnumbered combatant. Making a role of combat style is not required. This makes passive blocking a great choice for unskilled combatants who probably would fail at parrying. Damage is reduced according to relative weapon sizes as if a success in parrying had been rolled. And the choose location special effect is disallowed against any blocked location. Disadvantages and limitations. Passive blocking must be declared before the attack is rolled, before you know whether it hits and where, naturally. The weapon used for blocking cannot also be used to parry as long as the passive blocking is maintained. However, there's more to this story and we'll come back to it later. A successful attack automatically wins at least one special effect because it was unopposed. In this way, a passive block is not like a successful parry. And multiple blocked locations must be contiguous. For example, a human may not block both legs unless the abdomen is also blocked. Some notes. Most weapons can passively block only a single hit location. There are shields, however. 
Remember that in Mithras, a shield is just another type of weapon, a type that has been specifically designed for defense. Shields are great for passive blocking because they protect multiple hit locations, not just one. The largest shield in the core book can block five locations. Because shields can block or parry missile weapons, passive blocking against ranged attacks becomes an excellent option, especially against a wall of archers. The number of locations that a shield protects doubles when the wielder crouches down. A human has seven hit locations, which means the larger shields in the list will completely protect a crouching character. This can be the difference between life and death against archers. Importantly, if you are wielding two weapons, such as sword and shield, you may use one weapon, probably the shield, for passive blocking, and the other weapon, probably the sword, for active parrying against the same attack. First, the parry is resolved, and if it does not stop all of the incoming damage, then the blocking weapon is applied to the remaining damage if the blow lands on a blocked location. Further ideas. As a games master, I allow a two-handed weapon to passively block two locations, not just one. This is not stated in the rules, but it makes sense to me. Also, although it is not written in the book, I allow the circumvent parry special effect to be used to bypass passive blocking as well. Note that this is a critical only special effect. Frequently asked questions and my replies. Passive blocking sounds great. Why shouldn't everyone use it all the time? You're right. It sounds great because it is great and people should have it in mind at all times. If your players aren't seriously thinking about passive blocking, then they're really missing out. The enemies of the player characters should be thinking about it as well. However, this trick is not a panacea, and there are reasons not to use it. Especially against a single opponent, a skillful character may prefer to try parrying to win defensive special effects, especially against failed attacks. Just remember that you have to declare before the attack. Also, rather than relying on chance that a blocked location will be struck, a character may prefer to parry, especially to use a big weapon, like a shield, to actively parry a big attack, like a giant's fist, which would not be completely stopped by a smaller weapon. Ward location is a free action, so why can't I instantly drop it, use my passively blocking weapon to parry, and instantly reestablish the passive block? In slightly different forms, this question has come up many times in forum discussions. The answer is, yes, you may do that. For example, a character might declare a ward at the beginning of combat, leave it in place for a while, but then later engage a new opponent and decide suddenly that parrying is a better idea. The ward is dropped, the parry is attempted, maybe something else interesting happens, and then our combatant again decides to ward. That's all perfectly fine. What you may not do is both passively block and parry the same attack with the same weapon. You don't get two chances with the same weapon to bounce the same attack. 
and you can't switch off passive blocking to try to parry an attack that is missed to perhaps win a special effect. I included the word instantly in the original question twice to emphasize that this sequence of events could be much more rapid than my example suggests. That's still okay. Free actions may be performed at any time during a combat round, even before a character's turn comes around according to the initiative lineup. More on that in a moment. I must admit, my gut reaction to this question has always been mild distaste and a vague concern about players trying to squeeze out even more advantage than the writers intended. But upon reflection, I don't have a problem with the proposed tactic. Maybe there is some specific case to which I would object, but I can't name one right now. Probably with concerns like mine in mind, it has been suggested online that the choice between using a weapon for parrying or passive blocking should not cost an action point, but should be declared only on the character's turn, making it a different sort of free action. This is not what the rules as written say, but it's also not a huge departure, and it would not break anything to use that slightly more restricted version. What about passively blocking the head? This is not directly addressed in the rules. Not everything is, after all. As always, we should apply our best judgment. Of course, the head may be blocked, but putting an object in your line of sight means that vision-based tasks should become more difficult. These tasks include skill checks for perception and combat style, whether attacking or parrying. Whether the games master ought to assign a penalty grade like hard or formidable to such checks or to disallow them completely should be handled case by case. Some may wonder, why can't I peek out and then reestablish blocking as a free action? That may be possible. It's up to your games master's judgment. Personally, I would probably allow that, but any related skill check would be formidable. Well, that wraps it up for me today. I hope this brief discussion of the passive blocking rules has been helpful to you. My concluding advice to you all is know these rules and use them often. Game on! Thanks for that, Matt, or should I say thank you, rule guru. Great explanation. I always remember that Gulliver, the blue-robed sorcerer who has sadly now left the campaign, always used his passive blocking to protect himself, forfeiting the attack or parry roll. With his cooking pot on his head, he lacked any combat prowess, so passive blocking was a very purposeful choice for him. Also, I know that Bartleby has his divine shield and passive blocks with that as well. So plenty of possibilities for all players to use the skill within the game. So after my call for rule gurus was answered, I feel inspired to send out a, a message again to you all. So if you would like to contribute to the podcast, then why not drop me an email or message and let me know what you would like to cover. Maybe you are looking to get into podcasting and would like a regular segment that you can really get your teeth into it. 
So I'm always looking for reviews or interviews with people. So if you are interested, you can email me at inwills at gmail.com or send me a message on the various forums I frequent or on Discord. Also, if you are interested, then remember you can watch me um, do my content over on my YouTube channel where I explain various aspects of the game, post actual play videos and talk about GM in my previously mentioned The Gibbering GM series. Likes, subs and comments are always gratefully received and I do try to reply to all the comments you post. And that's it. Another episode of Mithras Matters completed. A shorter episode this month since we have had several long ones in the past recently. But remember, variety is the spice of life. Next month, the issue is going to be focused on inspiration. And there is going to be a segment from the design mechanism team as they talk about books which have inspired them definitely worth listening out for. So until next time, have a great month of gaming and I will chat to you all again in March. Until then, I hope all your opposed roles succeed and provide you with a well-deserved special. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. The content of this podcast is covered by the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. So please give appropriate credit if you are sharing or copying any part of this podcast. Thank you.